Our first scripture reading this morning is from the 32nd chapter of Exodus, beginning on page 75 in the Old Testament of your Pew Bible. Exodus chapter 32, verses 7 through 14. The Lord said to Moses, Go down at once. Your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have acted perversely. They have been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They have cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them and of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath, Change your mind and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heavens, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word.
Thank you both, praise team and sanctuary choir, for beautiful, beautiful music this morning. Uh, 15th chapter of Luke is where we join in our gospel reading this morning, the first 10 verses, uh, half of which we've already had a good children's sermon offered, so listen up. All the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to Jesus and listening to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Boundless, gracious God, may we this morning be lost in the immensity of your choice to find us. May your word grip our hearts so that we may know your grace in this and every hour. Amen. Um, one of the things that I have noticed as I have been aging, and there have been many things that I have noticed, um, I find myself arguing less. All of the bluster and blatheration that I used to spend trying to convince other people that I was right, or sometimes more important to prove to them that they were wrong, I now experience as kind of a waste of breath. My skilled debating technique, my evidence gathering, my well-crafted argumentation to change someone's mind about anything is now not something that I do as much as I used to do. Don't get me wrong, it's not that because I've become smarter to choose my battles more appropriately. Mostly I've just gotten older and don't have the energy I once did to bug people. I'm just more tired. And it's kind of a fatigue and hassle to spend all of that time and energy just to prove to you that you are an idiot. Or as W.C. Fields said once when someone said, you're drunk, W.C. Fields said, and you're an idiot. The only difference is I will be sober in the morning. <laughs> when it comes to arguments, there are, however, some arguments worth having. Moses gets into an argument with God here in the 32nd chapter of the book of Exodus. Moses is in his 80s, and God has just given him the law for the people, and it's not just the Ten Commandments. It's all of the laws and statutes for the governing of the whole nation. 
along with the architectural plans for the building of the tabernacle and which artisans are to work on which part of constructing the great tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant where the people would worship God while they were in the wilderness. Additionally, God gives him blueprints on how the priests are to live and how the sacrifices are to occur. And then while God is wrapping up this moment of legislative documentation with Moses, there's this huge commotion down below with the people. In the valley, the noise is so intense that we learn later in the chapter that Joshua, who has gone up the mountain with Moses and then paused at a base camp while Moses went the rest of the way up, Joshua runs up to Moses and said, the people must be at war. Listen to all the clamor. And Moses says, no, that's not the shouts of victory. That's not the shouts of, of, of uh, not shouts of victory, not the sounds of battle. It is a party. Moses, interestingly enough, had kind of grown up in the frat hall experience of the Pharaoh's temple, so he knew a party when he heard one. But this was not a party that he was going to enjoy. In fact, it was a party that was not making God very happy at all. God had brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, from slavery into freedom in the wilderness. And the first thing that they do when they pause and have some free time is they build a golden calf. Worse than that, the whole plan for this golden calf was Aaron's idea. The people said, why don't we get a God like everybody else? And Aaron says, well, uh, how about if you give me all your gold, your rings, and your jewelry, and we'll melt it down, and we'll see what happens. And Aaron, Moses' brother, fashions the golden calf. But what gets God really angry is what Aaron says in verse 5 of this chapter, when Aaron saw the golden calf, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced Tomorrow will be a festival to Yahweh. Aaron calls the golden calf God's name. This is Yahweh. We're going to worship. Now, I don't know about you. Just remember whenever you see in the text L-O-R-D, and it's in small caps, large capital L, and then small capital O, capital R, capital E, that is the translator telling you that the word in the underlying Hebrew scripture is Yahweh, is God's name. So we are going to have a festival to the Lord, says Aaron. And what he means is, is that we're going to worship this calf God as if it is Yahweh. This angers God. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know if you've ever called your, your current significant other, your spouse, by an old girlfriend's name. Um, it doesn't go over well. I've been told, not that I have any first-hand experience with this, and it isn't going well here either. When Moses and Yahweh are on the mountain, God hears God's name, but it's being called to a golden calf, and God says this isn't going to work, and that's when Moses and God have an argument. God's already just wiped the people off the face of the earth. I've had it. They're done. They're just going to be one big stain in the desert. I'm through with them. Centuries later, people would stand around and look at this spot in the desert where all of the sand has been scorched to glass 
And people will say, what happened here? And the inscription will say, that's what happens when you call a golden calf Yahweh. This is when God gave up on God's people. Except the 80-year-old Moses has an argument with God. What's amazing about this argument isn't that Moses decided to have an argument with God. It was that Moses won. How do we know Moses won? Because the Hebrew Scriptures continue forward from that moment. And he wins the argument by saying, well, what will people think? Yes, they probably deserve to be annihilated. We're not going to argue about that. We're going to argue about whether or not you should completely obliterate the people. What will people think that you brought them out of Egypt? You freed them from the bondage of Pharaoh. They're no longer slaves. They came into the wilderness. They tented at the base of the holy Mount Sinai, and then you wiped them all out. Clearly, you're a God that tricks people. Clearly, you're a God that in anger cannot be trusted out of Egypt and into oblivion. That's not who you are, says Moses. And so in the 14th chapter, the 14th verse of the 32nd chapter, we have this amazing sentence, and Yahweh changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on the people. God's mind changed because of Moses' argument. God chose to be consistent with God's character, God's character to be a redeemer, a rescuer, a seeker of lost sheep, a finder of lost coins. That's who God is. But we have to remember, as we just learned in Exodus 32, it is sometimes hard for God to be our Savior. It's sometimes hard for God. We have a tendency to diminish the cost of God's grace by treating it as if it's God's job. What does God do? God forgives. Like God is some sort of maintenance engineer whose job it is to run around and pick up the detritus and all of the destruction of our sin. Well, God's just the custodian of our unrighteousness. It's what God does. God saved me. Well, what do you expect? You know, God's our Savior. There you go. And if God is some sort of just maintenance engineer that keeps track of holding us together, it's very, very easy over time to take that same God for granted. What makes grace so precious, so valuable, what makes grace so amazing is that God could have chosen to do otherwise. When a shepherd loses 1% of his flock, or wild animals, or or, or just they wander off or they've gotten injured in the thicket, Jesus says, who among you will go out and look for the one? The answer is nobody. It's called shrinkage. It's 1% loss in herding animals. Any good shepherd, any good farmer who keeps cows 
knows that that's the price of doing business. Occasionally, an animal is lost. And if your herd shrinkage is only 1%, you're actually doing pretty well. Likewise, you open your wallet. You were pretty sure you had, you're pretty sure you had 100 bucks in there. And you're missing a 10. Who calls in sick to work, takes the day off, and spends the rest of the day looking for that 10? Yeah, you had a hundred bucks, but maybe the ten stuck with the other ten that you were given as a tip when you went to the way, the restaurant the other night. Or maybe you ended up spending it on something in drive through and you don't remember. You just kind of scoot on and figure it'll turn up or you'll be okay. Uh, unless, of course, you're a hoarder and then you do call in sick. and Yeah, it's its own problem. You figure, you know what? It's gone, it's 10 bucks out of 100, too bad, so sad. But if you do take the day off and you do go through all of your papers and you do eventually find it, even a really good hoarder doesn't call their friends and admit that that's how they'd spent all of their time, right? Nope, you don't have a party. No reasonable person does that and that is the point of these parables from Jesus. No reasonable person would track down one lost sheep when they have 99 more. No sane individual would rip the house apart looking for that 10 bucks. And no parent would actually wait at the door if having lost a ne'er-do-well son, hoping at some point he'll come to his senses and wander back down the road. You'd eventually just deal with the loss and get on with your life. You wouldn't wait in anticipation. Stammering Moses, reluctant Moses, Moses the quick-tempered, quick-exhaustion Moses, successfully brokers with God to save God's people from God's anger. So when we sing together Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me, what makes that grace so much more amazing is to consider that God could have chosen otherwise. That grace is bestowed upon us that overwhelms the depths of our wandering, our selfishness, our lost condition. That grace from God is to God optional. God could have chosen otherwise. God saves us because God suppresses God's own desire to obliterate us, to punish us in accordance with our sin. But consistent with God's own self, God ends up in love choosing us. That should make us say in our hearts and with our mouths, Hallelujah. You don't know the depths of God's love that chooses for God to do the hard thing. And that is forgive and welcome you and me. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.
and affirm our faith in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the dead.